Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. We are here today to talk about either global warming or climate change, depending on your mood. Um, and joining us, th- we have a theme this summer, I think, between this and the Nelly Fire is. thing. <laughs> you know, I tend to call it global heating, and then the trolls on Twitter are always like, "Well, it's like which one is it?" And <laughs> well, so actually, the person speaking, I think it's important to note, is Peter Kalmus, who is joining us to uh talk this through could you tell everybody who you are and what your background is sure yeah um so so yeah i'm peter kalmus i am a climate scientist and i currently work at nasa's jet propulsion laboratory i'm totally speaking on my own behalf here and um i'm also a climate activist and that's still unfortunately in my opinion sort of a rare combination to be both a scientist and an activist, but when, you know, there's a lot I don't understand about the science. I have my little niche things and we can get into that a little bit. But um, when I see the science, just broadly speaking, I personally find it really scary. And um, I care a lot about this planet and I care a lot about my kids and I care about my own future too. So I, I can't, I feel like I don't have any choice but to uh, also be an activist and to do everything I can to turn this ship that we're on away from this pathway that we're currently on towards increasing destruction. So that's basically who I am. Can you can you draw the distinction between heating and warming for me? Why it's important to say heating? Um, well, I think global heating is uh, just like somehow more accurate like you, when you're in a chemistry lab or something you talk about heating up you know uh, a flask as opposed to warming it up typically and heat is the the thing that is um you know the physical quantity that is changing right now on planet earth and physics you don't have warm uh, that's not a physical thing you have heat so global heating feels the most accurate to me and global warming of course just uh, from a pr point of view it sounds like oh that's not a bad thing you know people up in canada are like that's that sounds pretty good a little bit of global warming so global heating is um what is happening on planet earth right now because we've changed the energy balance by emitting all of these greenhouse gases most notably carbon dioxide and methane and so there's basically two primary ways that the earth interacts energetically with the rest of the cosmos one way is sunlight streaming in uh in the visible spectrum you know it's peaked around visible that's why our eyes are tuned to it and then the other way is infrared radiation streaming back out into space from the earth as what we call a black body so every physical object with a temperature (laughs) which is every physical object um, produces uh black body radiation that streams off of it and you know goes to the far field and the earth's um because of the temperature of like the earth and the lower atmosphere most of the earth's black body radiation is peaked in the infrared and that interacts so (laughs) infrared radiation can't stream through carbon dioxide and methane 
the same way that visible radiation does because different molecules interact with different frequencies of electromagnetic radiation. So what we have right now is the same amount of sunlight pretty much coming in and less infrared radiation streaming out into space. And so any elementary school kid would be like, well, it's unbalanced and you've got you know, this energy building up. And so the temperature has to heat up until, you know, hotter, uh, you know, black body is going to emit a larger amount of energy. And then you'll come back into balance at a hotter temperature and that's global heating. And then all of the stuff that we're seeing, like crazy rainstorms and heat waves and wildfires and uh, droughts and all of these impacts that we're starting to experience in this really sort of ferocious way now, uh, those are all the results of that global heating. And so I call that, I tend to call those impacts climate breakdown or maybe earth breakdown um, because it includes things like species going extinct and forest dying. So it's like the whole earth is changing as a result of this very fundamental thing, which is global heating. So that actually, there are a couple of things. Well, first of all, this is Angry Planet, and you can see why. Uh, I'm Jason Fields. Uh, Matthew Galt is also here. Um, so we also now have to worry about space getting colder, if I'm understanding what you're saying, because there's less infrared light uh, actually hitting space. So is that a crisis <laughs> as well? No. <laughs> Yeah, space is just doing its thing. Space is, uh, I, so I started out as an astrophysicist actually and didn't switch into climate science until about 2012. And, um, I made the switch actually because I was starting to get really worried about climate change. And I'm like, I can't, you know, I can't devote my time and energy and talents to astrophysics as much as I loved astrophysics. I, with a crisis here on earth, I had to, kind of um get my head out of the stars and um start studying this planet and that was my initial feeling was like i gotta pitch in and help out with climate science um but yeah the you know space is uh space is very cold and uh and very um uh what's the word um it doesn't care about us (laughs) unforgiving i've always heard yeah it's it's unforgiving yeah, it's just very uh um uh what is it when like you just don't care one way or the other, you know? It's it's <laughs> it's, it's a very neutral, a large cold neutral entity without a lot of matter on average. So, and yeah, and I definitely and it makes me think of this earth, you know, Carl Sagan was really onto something when he talked about the the pale blue dot because that's the way I see it too. You know, good planets are they're hard to come by. And uh, this is a very excellent one. And there's something just uh, sort of like too on the nose. It's like too tragicomic that, you know, we have these amazing space telescopes now, which are finding exoplanets at a furious rate, just at the same time as our own planet is starting to get less and less habitable because it keeps heating up like this. And somehow those two things happening at the same time, it's like, are we in some bad science fiction novel or something? It's just, I don't know. I find it such a cosmic coincidence that those two things are happening. I feel like the universe maybe is sort of trying to teach us a lesson that we're not, we don't seem to be learning yet. How hot are we talking about? I, I, With the UN uh, goal, right, of 1.5 Celsius above the historic pre-industrial 
temperature of the earth, right? That number is supposed to be okay. Uh, that if we only <laughs> go up that amount, it's okay. Um, first of all, I was kind of curious if you think that's okay. Second of all, do you think there's any chance in hell that we're actually going to stop at 1.5 anyway? Yeah. So no and no. Yeah, no, I don't think it's okay. I, I think that was deeply unscientific to to kind of put that as a safe level. Um, you know, a, a few years before that, 2.0 was kind of the quote unquote safe level. And I think that's very, it's very convenient for politicians because it allows them to keep kicking the can down the road. Um, but no, it's not safe. Um, we're at 1.2 degrees or 1.3 degrees above kind of the 1850 to 1900 average, depending on sort of exactly how you do the running average and and calculate the difference. Um, and to me, like this doesn't feel safe. I mean, whether or not you feel safe, that's a subjective thing. But um, like, look what happened on Maui this summer and look what happened to the forests in Canada and look what happened to Pakistan last summer. Um, you know, look what happened in Seattle and Vancouver. Um, what's going to happen with agriculture? I feel like you know, we don't talk about crop failure enough and I'm not totally sure what's going on with that. But to me, that feels like a looming threat hanging over all of our heads. And, and I don't feel safe at this level. Um, and one, I feel like 1.5 is going to be so much worse than anyone imagined when they were talking about 1.5 as a safe level. Um, so yeah, I think we're, we're in for quite a ride no matter what humanity does at this point which is such a shame because this was all completely unnecessary in my opinion um and then uh yeah i don't think there's any way in hell that we're going to stay under 1.5 and the reason i say that is largely because of president biden you know if um the white house was we have a democrat in the white house supposedly a liberal and if they were doing everything they could to stop global heating and to pull, put on the brakes and, you know, then I'd have some hope. Maybe I, I think it would still be pretty tall order to standard 1.5. Um, we probably still fail, but the fact is that, um, you know, the white house is still careening eagerly, uh, expanding fossil fuels as quickly as they possibly can. Right. So the Willow project in Alaska and then the mountain Valley pipeline, which was, was really like a, felt like a knife in my back, right. That the white house would, uh, kind of kowtow to Joe Manchin. And, um, the thing was stopped, uh, the state of Virginia, like the court, of, you know, the, the, um, appellate court in Virginia had put a stay on the Mountain Valley pipeline. The thing hadn't been uh, under construction for years. And then Joe Biden was like, Hey, we got to get this thing started again. And he pushed for it to restart. And guess what happened? It, it's under construction again. Um, and that's taking us precisely in the wrong direction. And we need to go, you know, and, and the White House has just had such a deep track record since Biden got into office of, um, fast tracking, you know, and expanding drilling on federal lands and in federal waters and, um, you know, begging OPEC to increase production and, um, you know, basically doing everything that the fossil fuel industry could possibly have dreamt of, uh, for any president, Republican or Democrat. So, and then you multiply that by all of the nations of the world that are basically doing very similar fossil fuel expansion. And so we're still basically, we've, as as 
you know, humanity, we have the pedal to the metal um, towards ever more fossil fuel production right now at this moment we're we're expanding yes we're expanding renewables as well but that's only half of the battle right like the, this is caused primarily by fossil fuels it's like 80 percent or so fossil fuels is causing global heating and about 15 percent industrial animal agriculture so the main cause is fossil fuels and if you're accelerating and expanding uh fossil fuels and doing what these uh, frankly, villainous fossil fuel CEOs want you to do as a politician, you're part of the problem and we're going to get higher temperatures. So yeah, that's why I think there's no chance in hell right now that we could stay under 1.5. Um, from an earth system point of view, like if somehow, uh, humanity could magically stop fossil fuels overnight. And I should, you know, put a footnote that if that did happen, you know, our food system, for example, depends on fossil fuels. So it would, there would be carnage there too. So we have to ramp down fossil fuels in a very equitable and smart way. <laughs> um, but with an emergency mode urgency, but supp suppose that, you know, for whatever reason, humanity did stop fossil fuels like right now, then I think there are a system, there's a pretty good chance that it wouldn't go over 1.5 degrees Celsius. So it's really the geopolitics and the, the corporate um, sort of profit motive. Um, and this, you know, what I've really started to think of as the death cult of capitalism, um, you know, multiplied by all the people in power and um, all the people, all the other people who aren't in power, but don't really think about it or don't care or don't know what to do. Um, that's why I don't think there's any chance we're going to stay under 1.5. And I do hope we get our act together quickly and maybe keep things to 1.6 or 1.7. Every little bit that we stop it from getting hotter is going to be so, so helpful for humanity going forward. Um, <clears throat> is it worth in your mind even having the argument with people that don't believe this is happening anymore? It's so strange to me that there's still a lot of people who don't think global heating is happening. <laughs> I don't know how that's even possible. Like, like what if there was like, you know, a campfire that was lit and you had 10 people around the campfire and three of them were like, like the campfire is not burning. I mean, what would you say to those people? Um, if it was clearly burning, um, I just don't know. It's, it's the strangest thing. Uh, when, when a human mind refuses to accept extremely evident, obvious facts that are right in front of them, um, my mind just doesn't know how to relate to them. So um, maybe someone else does, um, but it just seems like that's a conversation stopper. And there's really not, I don't know so what to do a, next. That's a firm no from you then. It's not worth, it is no longer worth engaging. And I like, I think that's a yeah. fair answer given where we've been over the past 10 years. Right? Yeah. I, I, you know, I, we, we each have limited time and energy and capacity and I'm, I feel extremely limited. So I'd rather spend my time trying to convince climate moderates. So these are people who agree that there's a problem. You, uh, President Biden could be one of these, right? He says he accepts the science and yet he's expanding fossil fuels, right? So there's a real problem there. And it does feel like there is a way to engage with those people, right? So, okay, you accept the science, you accept that this is super dangerous and it's being caused by fossil fuels. All right. But you're still expanding fossil fuels. So hmm, why is that? Let's have that discussion, right? And try to work through that. So that's kind of where I'm more. And there's a lot of support for President Biden, right? There's a lot of people out there, a lot of liberals 
who still don't see a problem with that. And, um, you know, I find that quite strange that they don't think there's a problem with that. I think it's because they don't yet fully understand just what an emergency we're in. So I think that I feel like that's one of my primary roles is, um, like I totally get what an emergency we're in and I'm trying to help more people understand that. And so I have to, you know, I get a lot of, um, uh, you know, a lot of, um, uh, shade from people who call me a doomer and they're like, Oh, we got to give people hope. We can't scare them too much. And I'm like, you know what? All I, I got this science going into my head and it makes me feel afraid. And I just have to be honest. I just have to be truthful and I'm going to tell the world about that science and I'm going to tell the world about how I feel. Cause if I hid either one of those things, the facts or the emotions in any way, then I wouldn't be being truthful. And I think it's super important. That's, that's of paramount importance as a scientist to be truthful, to know what you know and what you don't know, uh, to be ethical. Um, and to me, to try to sugarcoat things is deeply dishonest and un- unscientific. I think people don't necessarily know what the Biden administration is doing in terms of fossil fuels. I really don't. Because um, what most people hear is electric cars and <clears throat> where's lithium going to come from? And, you know, there, uh, which we're pretending is also a crisis of a different kind. And it's interesting also because Biden, I'm not surprised that he is looking for more fuel because when Ukraine was invaded, gas prices went through the roof. People started to freak out, and I'm not surprised that as a politician, he went out and tried to, you know, drill baby drill. We're not great at, at long term thinking. Yeah, that's a that was the yes, very right. like yeah that was the uncreative, unimaginative. You know, maybe global heating is just an, another quote issue response, right? So, so I think he and his advisors when they. T- came into office. They're like, all right, yeah, global heating is kind of bad, but it's another issue. There's, we've got, you know, 12 or 15 issues and global heating is one of them. And it's probably not the most urgent and the public doesn't care about it. So, so yeah, that response, the drill baby drill response was the business as usual. This is what presidents have done. This is what my mentor Obama did. Obama was the king of drilling. I mean, he was so proud of expanding fossil fuels. Um, uh, you know, I, I thought it was really weird when Greta actually went and met with Obama because, um, uh, it just was so, you know, like this is the guy that's, you know, expanding fossil fuels and, um, who, and who knows better, right? So to me, it's almost worse when someone knows better and they know what they're doing and how irreversible the damage is and they do it anyway, because, they don't have the creativity or the imagination or maybe the courage to, to do the better thing. So, um, yeah, I think that yeah, I wrote an op-ed when that, you know, decision to expand fossil fuels around the Ukraine invasion was made because I, I felt like that was such a pivotal moment when, uh, the United States through the bully pulpit of the white house, you know, Biden could have said like un- unleashed through just executive orders, right? Not, not with, 
the help of Congress at all. He could have been like, all right, here's our plan to really expand renewables in emergency mode. And we're going to, you know, maybe nationalize the fossil fuel industry. Um, you know, they could have done that through legal means, I think, by, by basically, you know, purchasing a lot of shares, for example. And then they could have released a, uh, a plan to, uh, once they kind of controlled the supply of fossil fuels. So then they can start ramping it down, but they could have a program where based on income, you know, they, they kept gasoline affordable for the working class, which is super important. Right. And it's not, that's not a moral issue. You, you have what, however you navigate and engineer this transition that is, you know, the science is so clear that we need, you know, the politics of it is a little less clear. Um, and it certainly will take a lot of creativity and a lot of great legal minds to figure it out. But what's one thing that couldn't be more clear to me is that you have to protect the working class. If it's unpopular, if however you roll out the transition, if it's unpopular to the working class and it causes them pain and they don't know how they're going to pay their bills and they don't know how they're going to get to work, um, they're going to say this sucks and um, they're going to vote out whatever politician is doing the, that climate plan and they're going to vote in somebody horrible who says it's a hoax and we're going to be you know, two steps backwards, right? Um, it happened in France with the yellow jackets, the gilets jaunes, and um, it would happen again. It's just, it's like a law of nature, right? So however you do this, you got to do the transition fast, but you have to do it in a way that protects the interests of the working class so that it's a sustainable, you know, basket of policies. I don't know if, if uh, I don't know how well seizing and nationalizing the petroleum industry in America would play. I'm for it, but I agree with Matthew. I yeah, imagine I, that that would not go well. I think, um, you know, smarter people than me have written some articles about how that might work. Um, and I think there's various ways that it could go. But, you know, I think the what we have to the the, the sort of um, uh, model, I think the precedent is World War Two and kind of the uh, the reconverting of factories uh, to um, kind of help with the war effort, right? Which happened very quickly. And um, there were, I think, emergency powers that were put into play. Um, but the the really key difference there, <laughs> it's not like legal differences. Um, the really key difference is that that transition had public support, right? And the fossil fuel industry has spent the last 50 years uh, lying to the public and buying politicians to block action. And that's, and that's a huge part of why, you know, Biden probably can't, um, easily do what needs to be done is because, and other Democrats, uh, they, they accept money from these fossil fuel people and they're friends with them. Like they, I think they go to the same parties, et cetera. Right. So they're still very much in that kind of like business as usual, um, headspace and social space. But the other big problem is that, you know, I, I think the public really needs to know a lot more uh, of the details of how the fossil fuel in industry has literally colluded, has formed organizations like the American Petroleum Institute to literally lie and spread false information about uh, climate science and climate change and to delay action. I mean, it's just it's the. It's it's the conspiracy that could bring down our you know entire global civilization, <laughs> um, and and I don't think the public realizes um, that this was a decision that 
you know, powerful people have made since the seventies for the sake of getting even more money. They were already rich, but it wasn't enough for them. They wanted more. Uh, they could have said like their own scientists said, Oh gosh, like we're heading towards irreversible planetary destruction because of these products that we're selling, uh, humanity. Um, the people in charge could have said, Oh, that's not good. Um, let's, let the public know about this. Let's talk to the government and let's work together with society to transition away from this energy source into something else. Uh, that's the decision I would have made. <laughs> but these people didn't make that decision. They said, oh, um, well, if we do that, you know, we can't just like stick a pipe into the ground and mint money from it. Um, and so we have to uh, keep this quiet we have to spread disinformation. When independent scientists start to say the same thing, we're going to cast doubt upon it. And, um, you know, and that's exactly what they did. And I can't, I can't imagine it's kind of hard to imagine something more evil than that. Um, but here we are and they're still doing it. Right. Um, there was a congressional testimony. I think it was in 2021 and for the big, uh, the big, like the oil major CEOs were, um, being drilled by Congress. And they were literally asked by Congress, will you stop spreading disinformation? And they did not agree to that. They did not say, oh yeah, okay, maybe it's time to stop spreading disinformation. They filibustered. They spouted word salad and the you know congressional committee was like, all right, well, we take that, then you're filibustering. And that means you're not willing to stop spreading disinformation. And um, and again, I think the public needs to know about that. Like this has been happening since the seventies and it's still happening right now. Uh, Where do you think they're planning to live? I just, I don't crazy know. Rich people. Do they not want to visit Venice <laughs> ever again? <laughs> it's just like, so, it's so would, uh, I would, uh, I would ask why so many of them have sought citizenship in New Zealand. Uh, I, I just don't know. I, I can't understand their psychology. It's the weirdest thing. I um I really think you should get a few of them on the show. Yeah, I, I did talk I had lunch with a couple of fossil fuel CEOs because there was this weird thing where they wanted me to come to some conference. I, I think they were wanted to use me as greenwash. And then they were like, all right, let's see the slides you're gonna present. And I like was just like, you know, talking like this, like this is kind of what I would have told them all and told them that they, they should feel ashamed of themselves, you know? And so they're like, all right, we're not going to have this guy come. But like somehow in, in planning for that, I ended up having lunch with a couple uh, fossil fuel executives and their main, they were, it was pretty weird. Um, I won't, I won't lie. <laughs> and their, their main thing. And, and I didn't let them buy my lunch cause that would have felt super weird. But, um, they were like, uh, we'll go as fast as the public goes, you know, like we're just giving people what they want. That's it. Like they are like, we don't have any responsibility. And, um, I think that's how they think of it is like, um, you know, they probably convinced themselves that global heating is not really that bad and the world needs fossil fuels right now. And so we're going to supply it and, we're spending, you know, half a percent of our revenues looking at alternatives, right? It's just, it's so crazy, but they, I think they give themselves little psychological outlets so that they can somehow keep going. But it's just, you know, the human mind is super good at the sort of rationalization, right? And um, that ability of the human brain to, to rationalize is uh, 
not serving us well right now. All right, Angry Planet listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. Unless you're on Substack, of course. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, Angry Planet listeners, welcome back. To I want to go back to the World War II metaphor. Uh, I want to point out that um, that kind of war footing happened because, because after a disaster, right? It was mm-hmm. a reaction. It was a reaction right. to something, to an attack that happened. Right. Um, and I've often thought with this, and I don't know what the final tipping point will be, but it will take something big and pretty dramatic, I think, for there to actually be a public reaction. Um, I get the sense that, that you may feel that once we hit that, once we have that moment, it's probably going to be uh, too late. Do you think that that's accurate? Well, I don't think, again, I don't think there's ever a time when it's too late. I just think we lose more and more uh, the longer we delay. So literally every day it takes us to, to start this transition in earnest. And again, like, sure, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act had some okay stuff. Like, sure, it's good to increase the charging network for electric vehicles. All, all that what stuff's you, fine. But that's not that's not the transition in earnest. That's the business the, as usual transition. The, what is the transition in earnest? What does it actually look like? What, uh, tra- what concrete the, things need to happen? When, when um, airplanes start flying less, you'll know the transition has started in earnest. That is the litmus test. Now, now the commercial aviation, it's not the biggest cause of global heating, but it is a luxury that we've gotten very used to. Um, it is one aspect of fossil fuels where no one will die if we shut that off. Right. So like, it's much harder to get fossil fuels out of the, the global food supply, right. Or to, um, you know, get it out of electricity, right. Cause we need, uh, we need electricity in hospitals and whatnot, but once we start treating this like an actual emergency, we'll say like, all right, what's more important being alive and having a habitable planet and, you know, having uh, sort of a somewhat stable uh, future for our kids or jutting off to Paris for the weekend. Uh, right now, the answer to that question is jutting off to Paris for the weekend because most people don't like the first part, they don't take it seriously. They're like, oh, like how bad could it be really? Right. So they don't accept that we're in an emergency yet. So once enough people do, we will start, we'll, we'll probably first see an end to private jets. Then we'll see probably policies that, uh, you know, um, make it more difficult to fly, you know, several dozen times in a year. Right. So maybe a policy, for example, that made, uh, 
increased uh, like an increased tax uh, for a number of miles that a person flies in the year. So the more miles you start to rack up, the more expensive it starts to get. And then eventually probably a hiatus on commercial aviation, at least until we have some way to fly planes that doesn't produce uh, carbon dioxide. Um, and that's not currently on the horizon, right? So, um, so to me, that's the litmus test. <laughs> And I, I know that's a weird thing to say, but every time I hear a plane and no matter where I go, I basically constantly hear, hear planes overhead. I'm like, all right, well, we're still not in emergency mode. We're still in business as usual mode and we're not treating this like an emergency. You know, and then once, once we kind of agree collectively that this is an emergency, then I think there's a lot of other policies, which would start to follow quite rapidly. And, um, you know, uh, we could talk about what some of those are, but that's not that's not really my expertise, but I think a lot of them are fairly obvious. So anything that um, can start to reduce the use of fossil fuels while protecting the working class um, would be like a kind of policy that I think would come in an emergency mode uh, um, transition. Will you unleash your full terror and anxiety on us? Will you paint the picture of Worst case scenario, what happens to the planet, what the world looks like? What is the thing that is when you're up at night trying to go to sleep is running through your brain that is worrying you? <laughs> you know, that's such an interesting question. Um, so I have a pretty serious meditation practice. And then also being an activist, those two things keep my own personal anxiety at bay. And um, uh, like over the last few years, there have been a few times when I've stopped meditating just because like anyone else. So it's, this is like an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening of meditation. So sometimes like I might, you know, there've been times where I got started to get a little anxious and then I would scroll through Twitter or something and watch Netflix. And and because of that, I would wake up late and then I wouldn't meditate in the morning. And then it just kind of erodes like that because I'm human like anyone else. And then my, if I stop meditating because of that, my anxiety, my anxiety starts to pour in. And so like I, now I'm, I've realized that and I'm you know more committed than I ever have been to keeping my practice because when I have that climate anxiety, I, I basically can't function very well. I can't do work very well. I can't write. Um, science gets a lot harder. And, and I will say that doing the science is getting harder and harder for me because it just sort of feels like, all right, so another paper about coral reefs that hardly anyone reads when they're like kind of dying in real time. I mean, you know, another paper that basically says, yeah, here's another reason we need to ramp down fossil fuels really quickly. I mean, do we need, there's already thousands of those. Do we, is another one of those really the best use of my time? Right. So, so it is my job, but I constantly am wondering about that. Um, but yeah, I, um, you know, I study extreme heat. Um, it's still a fairly new field for me. And, uh, I, I don't think we're going to avoid at this point heat waves that, uh, basically kill a million plus people over the course of a few days. Right. So there was a heat wave in 2003 in Europe where almost a hundred thousand people died over the course of a few days. Um, and, uh, if you have a even more intense heat wave and there's a blackout because everyone's running their air conditioners, for example. And so the power grid fails, uh, I can easily imagine, you know, a heat wave where just it's so strong, so much humid heat that people's bodies just can't deal with it. And their core temperature rises to a fatal level. And then you just get, you know, it's like the first chapter of ministry for the future. 
and it won't stop there, right? So, so the the physics of planetary imbalance it doesn't it's not you can't negotiate with it. It's not merciful. It just follows physical laws, right? So then, you know, a few years later, I don't know exactly when, um, but um, you know, I'm trying to nail that down with a little bit more precision, right? Like how this is going to play out in the future. Um, but I don't really know yet, but you know, then if it gets a little even hotter, you get even more humid heat and you end up with a heat wave where 10 million people die in, uh, you know, in over the course of a few days, maybe in, maybe in India or, you know, maybe somewhere in China or maybe in North America, I don't know where, maybe in Phoenix. Um, so, um, so that is something that, uh, that really terrifies me, um, personally and, um, would like to see that not happen, but it seems like maybe president Biden kind of had the last chance to keep that from happening. I think he might've had the last chance to keep things under 1.5 degrees Celsius. I mean, it would have taken kind of a miracle, even if the United States had started to transition into emergency mode, like would that have triggered other nations to do it as well? Um, so, so even that it might not have worked. But I do feel like we've sort of lost that chance now. Um, that that door is probably closed. Um, and then the other thing that really frightens me right now is um, uh, global food insecurity. So multiple simultaneous crop failures and um, the geopolitics that would accompany that. Um, you know, uh, so what sort of conflict would? We get set off when you have uh, climate famines, basically, and large, large numbers of people trying to cross borders. Um, you know, it just it doesn't seem like, especially with the you know invasion of Ukraine, it's it's not clear to me that uh, sort of world geopolitics is is stable enough to um, to kind of absorb those sorts of gut punches gracefully. Um, you know, I, I worry that we're not, if the universe has a lesson to teach us here, it's probably that we need to help one another. Um, and we need to, there's like more than enough resources to go around on this planet. If we stop hoarding, like most other species don't No other species hoards the way that humans do, right? We've got freaking billionaires. And then we got people that are basically making a dollar a day and don't have enough to eat. Um, so I think that's a lesson we're learning, but it seems like if anything, we're going towards closing borders and more autocracy and more guns on top of walls. Um, and that's, that's why I say, I'm not sure we're learning the lesson that maybe we're <laughs> it's, it's being asked of us to learn. So that those are the things that concern me a lot. I would say. Are you saving for retirement? <laughs> yeah, I do. I still do a lot of the things just kind of habitually that, you know, we do because that's what we do. Um, uh, I certain, I certainly wouldn't buy real estate in, uh, low lying areas of Miami or Phoenix right now, though, <laughs> you know, but people are still doing that too. So, um, yeah, I mean, maybe that's another, that'll be another indication that, you know, we're going into emergency mode when the real estate market actually starts to, um, uh, to take into account, to price in climate, uh, you know, global heating and climate impacts, which I don't think it's really done yet. Or maybe when the insurance industry and reinsurance finally throws up their hands and they're like, we can't do this anymore. Um, we're bankrupt. 
uh, and then that'll have huge you know, economic ramifications. So maybe that'll be another indicator that we're finally going into emergency mode. But, but yeah, right now everyone's still doing a pretty darn good job of pretending that everything's fine. It's like that um, famous cartoon with the the dog sitting in the fire, right? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. I'm fine. Yeah. It's all fine. Yeah. I don't know if I'll, I'll ever cash in on those retirement savings, but yeah, I'm still doing that. Um, but yeah, I do, I do, you know, a few, just a few years ago when, when we had the two degrees was a safe level, right? The whole narrative was like, oh, we got to do something and stop this because of our grandkids. Now the narrative is sort of, um, oh, like our young people are in big trouble and we have to do this to, you know, so that they have a future, right? So it's, it's moved up a generation. And I would argue that it's, it's in the process right now of moving up yet another generation because, um, I personally think that even us Gen Xers, there's a pretty good chance that uh, we could end up, you know, feeling, experiencing climate impacts very personally and in a very bad way, right? Um, Possibly even some of us, um, you know, eventually that's how we might lose our lives. So I, I just, I don't feel like we are personally that we are in a safe space right now. And, you know, and I don't, and I don't pretend to know what's going to happen, but, but people who say, um, you know, stay calm, um, you know, Kalmus is, he's being too alarmist. Um, it's going to be fine. Uh, you know, we've got the IRA and electric cars and, you know, we're going to roll out carbon capture. Those people are being deeply unscientific because they do not know that. They have no way of knowing that what that you know that things will be fine, right? So to me, I see deep uncertainty in the future, and I see extremely large levels of risk that we are not in the process of mitigating right now. So I do feel like um, if you know we continue day by day to expand fossil fuels instead of ramping them down, then yeah, I, I do think billions of lives could be potentially at risk. Uh, I do think that we will kind of go deeper into um, biodiversity loss, deeper into uh, the sixth mass extinction um, and that, you know, um, and into a hotter planet, uh, which will stay hot for a very long time. So these, the heat and the impacts, uh, you know, they do, even if we did like say we got to two degrees Celsius and it was terrible. It was like sort of, you know, uh, the tropics were uninhabitable or, or whatever. Right. So get all these bad impacts, let's say, um, and we finally stop burning fossil fuels. It's not like the planet suddenly cools back down to, to pre-industrial levels because the CO2 stays in the atmosphere for such a long time. So, so suppose we do get to two degrees Celsius. And, and I should say right now, the Paris agreement, um, kind of posits a, what, like, do you guys remember? It's like roughly a three degree Celsius world, um, and right now, you know, and those are non-binding agreements and it looks like we're, we're on track to an even hotter planet than that, but what, whatever the point is, whatever it gets to, whatever the, the peak temperature is, it's going to stay that hot or almost that hot for a very, very long time. And that's, and again, I don't think the public fully appreciates the irreversibility of, uh, of what we're doing right now, just so we can, you know, yeah, I don't want to be flipping about it, but you know, a lot of it is so people can just fly to Paris for the weekend. Um, uh, you know, which, yeah. Faced with this, this dilemma, uh, how then do you feel about the morality of more extreme actions? I'm not talking about 
uh, like going to a museum and throwing throwing paint at something uh, or like laying down in front of in front of cars mm-hmm. on a highway. I don't think that that stuff. I think that stuff gets headlines and annoys people. I don't know how effective it is. I'm talking about uh, somebody reading or watching how to blow up a pipeline and taking it to heart and doing something. Yeah. So I read Andreas Malm's book and um, I broadly agree with him. Um, I would actually maybe even go one step further and argue that um, those sorts of, so it's, it's, it's tricky, right? Um, This culture hasn't really caught up with these ideas yet. Um, So it feels very dangerous to to talk about them. But I think, you know, if you take a step back and you just try to look at the facts of the situation, we have, you know, inanimate objects, equipment, uh, you know, things like pipelines that are being built right now um, that are threatening the lives of billions of people. Um, So and and I think that's a fact. At the same time, it's it's really tricky because. we do need some, we, we can't just suddenly turn off fossil fuels because a lot of people would die. Um, but, uh, you know, if you imagine your granddaughter in the year, you know, 2080 or something or 2070, um, she'd probably, uh, kind of wish that some of us had been a little less polite, if that makes sense. Um, so I think once things break down, like once we don't have food to feed everybody and, uh, you know, coastal cities around the world are underwater and, um, you know, heat waves are killing a million people at a go, uh, then the, the sort of social calculus around, um, you know, uh, sort of stopping um, this infrastructure by harder means will be completely different. Um, and it's, so it's hard when you see that future coming, <laughs> but it's not here yet. And, um, you know, culture hasn't caught up with that yet, but, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, it's just, it's so hard to see world leaders, uh, taking us in the wrong direction like this and corporate leaders profiting from it. And, you know, the most powerful industry pretty much on the planet, the fossil fuel industry, uh, kind of having all of its chips down on continuing business as usual and putting as many pipes into the ground as possible and fracking for all that fossil gas. And um, it, they show, I see no signs that they're willing to even slow down, let alone kind of ramp things down. And and I find that deeply concerning. So So yeah, I think we are we're kind of at a transition point, I think, in terms of how we think about this. And it's really unclear to me how that's going to play out. Well, I'd say that's the kind of down note we like to end on. Oh, gosh. Um, Can I end on just a little bit of an up note, which is kind wait, of... Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, I thought you said that that's, uh, that's not something we should be doing. But go, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. well, Try I to mean... Cheer me up. You, okay, but I think it's realistic though. Like I would never give anyone false hope because I think that's actually that just stops the movement, right? That makes the movement slow down. Um, the thing that I that kind of keeps me going are two things, right? One is that the movement is strengthening pretty fast. 
Uh, more and more people are becoming climate activists. Um, I urge anyone who hasn't become a climate activist to do so. That doesn't mean reducing your own emissions, and it doesn't mean playing it safe. So being a climate activist means taking risks because we have to shift social norms. And this is starting to happen more and more. And um, I'm seeing a lot more people doing civil disobedience. I think uh, when you know, the actions I've done, the civil disobedience I've done, I, a lot of people have told me like it's inspired them to do civil disobedience. And, and that's kind of how it works, right? The more people who do it, the more it sort of becomes sort, sort of, it seems possible for other people. So that's number one. And uh, number two is that we've barely even tried to stop this, <laughs> right? Like I like to point out that the climate provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act amount to something like 6% of what the United States spends on its military every year. So like we're, we're still, we're, we're, you know, we're dealing with trying to stop, you know, the breakdown of Earth's habitability at it's, it's, it's only 6% as important to us right now as, you know, spending on, the military, which is already the most powerful military in the world, right? So, so that's what I mean when I say we barely even started to address this. And if we did, um, I think, uh, I think we really surprise ourselves at how fast we could make this transition into emergency mode and save what can still be saved. So, so yeah, my my message is you got to fight. If you don't fight, then we we kind of risk losing everything pretty much. So we're not going to get this for free. Um, it really kills me that these powerful people um, aren't willing to do the right thing. I started to really think of them as as ignorant. Um, they're, we tend to think of billionaires and presidents and people in power as somehow especially smart, but they are not. They are they are acting so incredibly foolishly and so ignorantly right now. Um, it kind of breaks my heart. Um, and it means that we got to fight, um, which also breaks my heart because, you know, as a scientist, um, we, and I think, uh, you know, I started out as a scientist thinking like this, and I think a lot of scientists did, we're like, we're going to do the science and then the politicians will do the right thing. Right. And that's sort of felt like how it was supposed to work. And that's not how it worked out. All right. Good. I think uh, it was a good mix of hope and despair. <laughs> Uh, Peter Kalmus, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, we really appreciate you taking us through all this. All right. Thanks a lot, Jason and Matthew. It's great talking to you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Angry Planet. The show is produced with love by Matthew Galt and Jason Fields, with the assistance of Kevin Nadal. This is the place where we ask you for money. If you subscribe to us on substack.angryplanet.com, it means the world to us. The show, which we've been doing for more than seven years now, means the world to us, and we hope it means a lot to you. We're incredibly grateful to our subscribers. Please feel free to ask us questions, suggest show ideas, or just say hi. $9 a month may sound like a big ask, but it helps us to do the show on top of everything else that we do. 
We'd love to make Angry Planet a full-time gig and bring you a lot more content. If we get enough subscriptions, that's exactly what we'll do. But even if you don't subscribe, we're grateful that you listen. Many of you have been listening since the beginning, and seriously, that makes it worth doing the show. Thank you for listening, and look for another episode next week. Stay safe.